This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, I talk with a triple crown winner. No, not a horse, although perhaps we should try that one day. Not a jockey, a runner who completed the NCAA distance triple crown around the same time BYU football won its national championship. He went on to two Olympics as a runner, others as a broadcaster, and now wins national team and individual NCAA titles as the men's cross-country coach. He is the one and only Ed Stone. Ed, what is going on, man? Jer, I'm so good to be here. I've been told that I have a face for radio, so, so happy to perfect. be here. Yes, yeah, this is ideal. great for you. Yeah. Uh, Ed is a horse's name as well, though, right? Uh, the talking Mr. Ed. <laughs> yeah, you're, not well, old to, you're not old enough to know that. It's but, before yeah. my time. Wilbur. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Is it... Is it Edmund, Edwin? What's your full name here? Edward Dale Eystone. Edward would have been the yeah, yeah. first guess. Yeah, why did I say that? Okay, so you grew up in Ogden. Are I you did. born in Ogden? Uh, actually, I'm uh, I'm Polynesian. I was born in American Samoa. Are you serious? Uh, yeah. And uh, my, my parents were on an assignment for the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My dad was a plantation ma- manager. And I was uh, born in uh, Tutuila, American Samoa, and uh, that my 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 family. I was the youngest, but my four older siblings and my mom and dad had been on that uh, particular assignment for I think three or four years, and and, uh, and I came along as the caboose of the family and was born in American Samoa. So I feel wow. like I do have a connection. That's cool. There, yeah. And then, uh, then uh, I think I was two weeks of age when uh, my parents then got a different assignment in Tonga, and so we flew in a small little plane from American Samoa to Tonga, and and I think they finished up there. And about six months later, we were in Ogden. So I am a just Pal- as a baby. Yeah, you I am were. a Palangi, of course, but I I do trace my roots back to American Samoa. Have you been back to American Samoa? I have or not. Tonga? Granted, you're a baby when this happened. Yeah, no. But still, some history with the fam. No, uh, of course, and that was certainly a seminal event in the in the life of my parents and of uh, my siblings. And my older siblings certainly have fond memories of it. And I, I've heard many stories about it. And one day, yes, I hope to return and check out my birthplace. So your dad worked for the church as a sort of farmer? Yeah, you know what? He was up at—the uh, the family had a, a, a ranch or a dairy farm up in Idaho— and uh, back in the, I guess it would have been in the 50s. I, I wasn't born until the 60s, but in the late 50s, uh, they went to a fireside and heard the story of uh, of, of some missionary work and, and some uh, some work missions that were taking place. And, and Dad kind of said, you know what? Let's sell the farm. Let's go have an adventure as a family. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, six months later, they were in— uh, uh, Western Samoa, American Samoa, and Tonga, and there were various plantations wow. there, and also some some building of some uh, church schools there that Dad was involved with, and and yeah, so it's it was a, a great adventure. I think it was a four plus year family adventure that I just happened to sneak along the tail end uh, last uh, six months or so. That's amazing. So uh, I guess kind of farming in the family. Growing up, did you have anything in Ogden there, or was well, that done once you were done in? Uh, yeah, Ogden? no, I, I basically was a was a city child, you know. I, I, from that point on, Dad made a career change at that point in time. He 
came back to the university, actually had, had graduated from the University of Idaho and then worked as a farmer. And then they had their adventure in Samoa. And uh, then when he returned, uh, went to uh, Utah State, became an Aggie, thought he was going to get a master's degree in uh, some sort of agriculture and came back and told my mom, you know what? I just signed up for a bunch of psychology classes. So uh, he made kind of a 180 in terms of career, uh, became a very successful um, psychologist and was a school psychologist in the Ogden City School District for uh, 20 plus years. That's amazing. And he was a runner too, right, at Idaho? Very good, very right? good, yeah. Ran at the University of Idaho. Um, Pre-World War II, uh, he was a freshman, uh, December 7th, uh, 1941, uh, listening to the radio on a Sunday morning and uh, I think working there in the, in the frat house when uh, the signal came by that uh, um, the, the Japanese had invaded Pearl Harbor and that, of course, changed his athletic career a little bit. He had just finished that freshman cross-country season, uh, and at that point in time, everyone pretty much uh, ran off and enlisted. He became uh, an officer and ended up being in a new uh, branch of the service called the um, a paratrooper. Uh, in fact, he wanted to fly planes and didn't have uh, 2020 vision and said, okay, I'm going to jump out of them instead. So, uh, that's uh, kind, of, kind of the story that I heard. <laughs> his his uh, Scotch ancestry, uh, he realized that he got uh, paid a little bit higher, ha- hazard pay uh, at the time. And so he jumping he's, out he's of said jumping out of planes. And so he <laughs> went for that and had, you know, was, was an important part as, uh, as everyone from that greatest generation was doing. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he said that his... Uh, you know, he was just a freshman. Many of his uh, his frat mates who were juniors and seniors went immediately off because he was just a freshman. He had a, a year before he actually saw active duty, and many of those uh, dear friends of his ended up going off, uh, joining the Air Corps, and, um, and didn't come back. So... Um, but in, anyway, he uh, made it through, came back, and met my mother when, when he was going um, and, and running again at the University of Idaho after uh, his military service. And a um, couple, you know, within a year or two, they had started a family and initially was going to be a farmer. And then, uh, like I say, took a 180 after his, his time being a plantation manager in the, over in the islands. And uh, so I had the uh, opportunity to, to grow up in, uh, on the mean streets of Ogden. <laughs> Ogden is Ogden, right? Um, your dad sounds like the most interesting guy in the world. He really I is. mean, there's a lot there. Yeah, no, he re- really was. Had, amazing. Both, both mom and dad are just f- were phenomenal uh, people and gave us just a real solid uh, foundation. You know, I, I look to him, obviously, as uh, the greatest male uh, role model I could have in my life. So very grateful for that uh, that start and just a man of integrity and, um, you know, man's man. How did uh, your mom influence you? And were there were there running genes? Were there, was there athleticism elsewhere, <laughs> or was it like from your dad? Well, you know, mom claims that uh, that uh, that Grandpa Geddes was actually a, a pretty good runner and could outrun uh, everyone in Preston, Idaho. So I don't I don't know. I, I, my, he had passed before I was uh, was born, and so I didn't ever get to meet him. But she would like to claim at least some of that. And uh, as we know with genetics, it's, it's kind of a fifty fifty proposition. Uh, I think mom was more of the uh, spontaneous artist of uh, kind of um, 
just a, a real loving person, a fun, fun person. Dad was a little bit more serious and let's get the work done and, uh, and whatnot. And mom was a little bit, oh, um, you know, spontaneous, I guess uh, I would, would bestify her. She was uh, graduated is in, uh, uh, what was it, uh, sew, uh, sewing and textiles and uh, taught, um, taught sewing and uh, uh, type and all kinds of uh, classes at Ogden High School for about 25 years. Went back and got her Ph.D. when she was uh, probably 55 years old oh, wow. uh, back at the University of, of um uh, at Penn State University, where one of her old classmates now was uh, serving as as the dean of the department, so she went back on some in summers when I was in high school. She'd go back during the summer. During the summertime. How about that? <laughs> got, when got, she wasn't teaching. When she wasn't teaching, so she'd take that time, go back, work on her PhD, and um, which was funny because at the time I was starting to run and 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 get some attention from the local schools. Of course, this was back in the days before the internet. And so uh, Harry Groves was one of the real famous track and field coaches of the time. Penn State had a very good program. And so she has this wonderful story of her going in to Harry Groves' uh, track office and going, hey, Harry, you know, and just like, oh, bro- brother, I got a, another mom here talking about her kid. And he <laughs> has no idea because there's no, no such thing as an Internet. And right. oh, Harry, I got this son out in Ogden, Utah, who was running. Uh, I have no idea what the times were because she wasn't that familiar or versed with the times, but I, I probably let her know what the times were. And they probably weren't as astronomical as, as the, the times that uh, Harry Gross was used to. But he said, I, he's a really pretty good runner. I think you really ought to bring him out. And Because uh, she really loved the campus there at Penn State. And, oh, that's nice. And she, yeah, yeah. And she was getting her PhD there, and she'd spent multiple summers there. So uh-huh. why not yep. uh, talk to the track coach? And the guy was going, yeah, great, great. What is, what's the name? Istone, Virginia. Okay, well, thank you, Virginia. Yeah. And she went back numerous times over a couple of the summers saying, my son's getting a little bit better, Harry. You, you should probably pay him some attention. Nothing. Not a crickets, okay? <laughs> uh, long story short, let's, let's fast forward. We're jumping over a lot here. But uh, 1988, Harry Groves. Well, no, no, no let's, let's fast forward. Not quite as fast. Uh, far, far into the future. 1984, NCAA championships cross-country are being held and hosted by Penn State University. Oh shoot! <laughs> the guy who is, uh, you know, helping out, and uh, one of the, I, I guess I don't know if he's the meet director, but obviously is they're they're hosting it there. So the NCAA championships are on his home course there. Mom flies out, dad flies out to watch the race. I come across the finish line in first place. Harry Groves is in the chute, kind of sorting things through, and she goes, "Harry, Harry." Harry, how's it going? <laughs> That's my son. I told you he was good. <laughs> I won the championship. So. Oh, man. Did he connect the dots in that moment? I think he did, certainly. And what's funny <laughs> is I had not heard that story until 1988 oh. when Harry Groves is one of the one of the head track coaches for the Olympic team. And I was in, actually it was 1992 because it was in Barcelona, Spain, mm-hmm. and Harry kind of took me on, uh, took all the distance guys to a tra- uh, trail so we could get some training in. And then You'd he, already made the 88 Olympics. I'd made the 88 team, and this was the 92 team, and then Harry tells me that yep. story. Because he goes, well, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. <laughs> but your mom was right. You ended up being pretty good. And, like, that's amazing. Um, how many times do you hear from parents as a head coach of, oh, my son or my nephew or I know a guy? Right. Like, 
Yeah, they don't exactly, work out exactly. And but I, sometimes maybe sometimes they, they do. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. And I, I, as a coach now, I, I remember that story that my mom told of that Harry Groves told of my mother, and I treat every mother with the utmost respect because who knows? Maybe their t- son too will end up being a. And making it to the highest levels, and you have the blessing of the internet. You can actually look up some yeah, times. Yeah, exactly. You can actually that, you know, that, connect. That and certainly legal helps. recruiting means, and <laughs> yeah, that yeah. certainly helps. Oh man, that's an epic story. That's, that's crazy. A, that's a wonderful story. Well, and thanks for coming. In. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, so when you're little, when do you realize I'm I'm good at running, and how do you discover running? Because Typically, running's not the first sport a kid goes to, right? Well, you know, I grew up, and I tell the story, and, uh, you know, I, I loved, especially in the 70s when I was growing up, baseball, I think, was even a bigger deal than it is now. Um, it, I don't think it had been eclipsed by basketball yet in terms of popularity uh, what, by the youth and, and probably not even football. Baseball was a, a big sport, and I wanted to be a baseball player. I enjoyed playing baseball. I had Olympic, not Olympic aspirations, but I was hoping yet like every little you know fourth grader that they would be a professional baseball player, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. Play for the Reds. Exactly. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and I knew that it, there was a particular order that you had to go, little league, junior high, high school, probably get drafted out of high school, but mom would want me to get a college education, so probably forego that, play in college. And then uh, once I got my degree, again, into the the draft, and then it was maybe a a couple weeks in the minor leagues before getting (laughs) called up to the majors. And then, you know, so I had it down. Yeah, you know, you, you have to have the sequence in. And actually... In all humility, things were working out according to plan all, all the way through Little League. I was playing at the Little League level and, uh, and doing, I thought, quite well. But um, as we went and uh, went from uh, Little League to actually junior high ball, then there was uh, one little um, you know, hurdle that you had to get over, and that was called the tryout. And so as a seventh grader at the T.H. Bell Junior High School, tried out for the Little League uh, baseball team and unfortunately did not make the cut. And, and there weren't that many seventh graders, so I certainly could have come back as an eighth or ninth grader. But um, that day in uh, kind of desperation, I think, I, I walked by the baseball field that uh, that those who had made the team were now playing on and hoping that maybe the coach would see me and reconsider, oh, well, Ed, I guess we can. But no, of course, he, did, he didn't see me. But as I walked by the athletic complex there, I walked by our football field. We didn't have a track, but we did have a football field. And I realized that there were people running laps around the football field. And for the first time, it kind of dawned on me that there was another um, another sport in play during the spring of the year besides baseball, and that was track and field. And so I went and talked to Mr. Zabriskie, our Spanish uh, Spanish teacher and uh, track coach the next day and said, hey, um, didn't make the, the baseball team, but I'd like to try to uh, try out for the, for the track team. And he told me something that I loved. He said, Ed, as long as I said, what do I need to do to, to try out for the track team? And he said, Ed, as long as you come out and do the workouts that I tell you to do uh, and come out every day, you can be on the track team. There are no cuts on the track team. And I went, yes, okay, this is something, I this is something that I could, I could at least try. And uh, I probably wasn't the, 
the, I certainly wasn't the fastest guy on the junior high team there initially. But And as we tried various events, I found, though, that as we moved from the 400 to the 800 to the to the mile, uh, of course, it was 440, 880, and mile and two mile uh, back then, uh, that um, the longer the event, the better that I did, in, you know, relative to everybody else. And uh, I could, as a seventh grader, I could beat all of the seventh graders my age. Uh, I could beat most of the eighth graders and quite a few of the ninth graders in the mile. And so obviously you gravitate toward that event that you're you're better at. And and I remember that first little time trial that we did thinking, okay, if I stick with this by the time I'm uh, a, a ninth grader here at, at the junior high, I'll be the best guy in the school. And it kind of, kind of, played out that way. You know, as a ninth grader, I got the school record. It wasn't super fast, but it was the school record and, um, and kind of set me up for wanting to pursue it in high school. And as, as I then transitioned from the junior high to the high school, I was very, very fortunate because there was a man by the name of Neville Peterman who had some, uh, some college, uh, experience. He had run at, at Weber State University uh, and was teaching at the school. And he, I, I think without him, I don't know that I would have continued at the level that I ended up going because he was just really into it. He was mm. one of the one of those track coaches that knew the sport, had run in college, was passionate about it, introduced us to a magazine called Track and Field Magazine, Track and Field News, which is the Bible of the sport. And so, uh, you know, every month you'd go to the school library, open it up and see how fast the fastest kids in the country were running in high school because they had a high school section. And and, uh, and taught us things about, uh, you know, he would have a, a strength and conditioning class first period, which basically turned into a morning run class and then would have the afternoon workouts. And so we were doing two-a-day workouts from the time we were sophomores on, and uh, he built up a, a great team culture, and that's where I got my experience. And also that's when I started running fast. When did you realize, oh, I'm pretty good, like I'm really yeah. good? And, and do, do you go in races like all over the country? Are you going international at some point? Well, um, I think um, I think I always believed ever, ever since that first, you know, when I, when I refocused from baseball to track and field as a seventh grader, that is when I kind of felt like I was going to be really, really good because you, when you take your – uh, goal, and you think you're going to be a major league baseball player, and then all of a sudden you're told, ah, that's this really maybe isn't your sport. Try this one. Then that new sport, at least for me, became my adopted uh, sport that I had all these aspirations in. And as a seventh grader, even though I hadn't run really that fast, I was the fastest seventh grader. And by the time I was a ninth grader, I was the fastest ninth grader in the school. As a seventh grader, I that's that's when I first set my goal to run in the Olympic Games. In fact. Um, as a seventh grader, I had a class called Success that we had, and then most junior highs have something like this. It's for the, you know, it's for the new seventh graders who are feeling, who are see, seeing ninth graders who have full beards and are fully matured, and you're still, <laughs> you're still eighty-five pounds or whatever. So you have this class called Success that talks about setting goals, it talks about career opportunities, it talks about self, a lot of self-esteem. You know, it's got all those cool posters on the war on, on the wall. You know, the, the classic uh, back in those days was the cat that was hanging 
something on a branch and it says, hang in there, baby, or something like that. I Googled that because it was really big in the 70s. Now you can go to your dentist and find those. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, so I had this class as, as, a, as a seventh grader. And one day, Mr. May came in and said, okay, today you guys are going to be writing letters. And we're going, okay, great. We got a pen pal and some third, Bel- in third, Belgium. third world country or something. And so we sat down and said, okay, what this is really is you're writing a letter to yourself that you're going to open in six years when you're seniors in high school. Oh, and I want you to put and I want you to put down on this letter all your the things that are you're going to be doing as a senior in high school. In other words, what what are some of the things you want to accomplish over the next few years? And so we dutifully filled out this little letter, sealed it up, gave it back to Mr. May, forgot about it the next day. Six years go by. I'm now a senior at Bonneville High School, and um, uh, Noreen Francis, who's our college prep class, uh, teacher, comes around and starts dropping off these yellowed envelopes on different, uh, on different tables, on the different desks. And uh, one of those has my name on it, Eddie Eyestone. Uh, and I thought that's weird because I haven't been really called Eddie since junior high, right? And I opened this up. I immediately realized this is a letter that I wrote back in Mr. May's class six years earlier. And so I open it up, and it starts off um, uh, something like, Dear Eddie, you are now a senior at Bonneville High School, um, unless you've dropped out. Ha, ha, ha. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. That was a comedian even back as, as a seventh grader. And he says, um, you were six foot two, 195 pounds. And because as a seventh grader, I thought that was the ideal height and weight, probably because my dad was six foot two, 195 pounds at the time, uh, which actually would have been pretty big for a runner, right? But, and I, that I was, uh, you know, I missed that one I, because I was. What were you uh, in? That? Well, I ended up uh, as a senior, probably close to six foot. I ended up, now I'm six two, but I was probably a little over six foot, but I was probably maybe 135. Uh-huh. Okay. So I missed it by about, what, 50, <laughs> 55 pounds. Um, but then the next line, I kid you not, says, uh, let's see, you are one of the best runners in the state. You are one of the best runners in the country. You are an all-American runner. You are the school record holder. You are being recruited by schools, colleges across the land. You will someday run in the Olympic Games. And all of those. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about goosebumps, yeah. kind of. Um, it was all true. It had all happened, and and as it, sitting there in that, as a senior, I looked at that and went, "Wow, what a what a naive kid, you know, what a silly <laughs> kid." As a seventh grader, yep. whose PR at the time was probably five thirty five for the for the mile, to think that in the next six years I would develop to that kind of 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 runner where all of those things had happened. I hadn't made the Olympic team, and even looking back on it now as um, even having accomplished those things to, for that next line, you will run in the Olympics, um, that, that would have been naive even at the time as a senior in high school to put that down, really. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it just goes to show you the power of dreams, the power of goals, the power of the, you know, positive thinking. Uh, all of those things rolled into one is, is I really felt like it was going to happen. And uh, you know, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have happened, um, I'm, I'm still to this day not saying it wasn't naive and a little, you know, overshooting the mark a little bit. And uh, but for whatever reason, 
that was uh, something I believed was going to happen, and it uh, eventually did. Much of it due to the fact that I came into this high school situation where I had an awesome coach who, you know, believed in me and uh, put me in a system where I could at least develop my high school potential to the to the place where, um, as a senior, I was recruited, if not by Penn State University and Harry Groves, uh, then at least by those coaches down here at BYU and in Chickislip at Weber State and and all the state schools. That's amazing because there is power in saying it out loud and or writing it. Because I think uh, dreams that are unwritten or unspoken are, or sorry, goals that are unwritten or unspoken are dreams. Yeah. They're yeah, just, ah, sure. hopefully yeah. this happens, I guess. But like you projected into the universe by writing that down. And then it wasn't like you ignored those ideas. Yeah. Um, you kept going and working and working. And then, and then you can self fulfill to a great degree. Not yeah. everything's no. that controllable in life. But some things are where you can work so hard and you get an opportunity and you seize it and you go and you make it happen. Yeah, yeah. And I won't argue with you on that that at all. And and I think that part of me uh, getting to whatever level I achieved in running was a, re- a direct result of uh, belief and having some of that naivete. And I try to teach that to my guys. You guys, you got to believe. In fact, the, the year that we won the championship, that was one of our themes naivete you gotta you gotta be dumb enough to think that it's uh it's possible and uh and and so uh, and then you have to have a lot of things break your way you have to have great mentorship and coaching you gotta you gotta i often tell people if you want to be truly elite in in many things then choose your parents carefully because there's that genetic component (laughs) that comes in and i think i had enough of that from from um you know dad and from mom to to kind of at least get me to the level where it was possible. Now, I think there's a lot of people that have that potential and uh, I, I don't I don't know that you necessarily need a super super elite pedigree to make it uh, if you're really passionate about it, but you certainly have to have there 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 is a genetic component in there. Uh, the nature versus versus uh, nurture uh, both things really come into play. Okay, so you get to BYU. You're this outstanding high school runner at Bonneville. Go Lakers, right? Yeah. Go Lakers. Nice. Um, You get to BYU. How do you get to the point where you win the Triple Crown, which is pretty freaking awesome? It's it's cross country, and then in track it's what, 10K, 5K? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think again, uh, great mentorship. I had some some great coaches as I came to BYU. Clarence Robinson was the head coach. Cheryl James was our distance coach. Patrick Shane uh, was also there to provide some counsel, and and he was one of the the coaches on staff. And I think it just it came. And then the teammates. I, I think first and foremost, probably the teammates, because as I came in. Uh, you know, as just a, a freshman back in the fall of 79, 79, 80 was my freshman year. Then there was a guy named Doug Padilla who was uh, has just kind of reaching his, his own heights at the time. He was going into his junior year. He's a return missionary junior. Um, and then there was a guy who was still hanging around the program, Henry Marsh, who would occasionally jump in. And Henry had made an Olympic team, a couple of Olympic teams, I think, by then, or at least one. Um and then Paul Cummings had graduated. He was in the area. So there were all these All-Americans that were either part of the program or still running uh, on the track that I was able to look up to and, and go, wow, this, this really is uh, a place where if I 
if I do the things that I can do, and if I run with these guys as frequently as possible, then why can't I, you know, make it then to the next step? Uh, so the fresh, freshman year, I, I was, uh, I had some great experiences and, and came up a little bit short in terms of didn't make it to the national meet in cross country or indoor, but then uh, went to the World Cross Country Championships in the junior race. I went to the to the trials um, and to the U.S. Cross Country Trials in 1980 and finished second place and then went to Paris for my, uh, that was the first time where I was wearing a USA kit and representing my country. That was a pretty big deal. First time out of the country other in than- Paris? Yeah, yeah. First time out of the country other than back in my uh, American Samoa and Tonga days. And so it was pretty cool to get that passport and uh, travel and be with the, the U.S. team there. And I ran in the junior race, which was people under the age of 20. And in that race, I had a, uh, again, just a crazy thing. Things all fell together in the right place. And I ended up, uh, uh, I think, passing a, a Russian in the straightaway and ended up uh, getting third place, and, um, and, and which meant that I got on the awards para style. And it was, you know, actually giving autographs after the race and, and with literally thousands of people in the stadium seeing us run. I was going, wow. This track and field and cross country, it really is a big deal. Uh, you know, it was it was it was big time in in the U.S. back then, but even bigger internationally. And that's where I went. This would be really cool to continue to to get a taste of. And and so uh, freshman year, I thought what well, I just had great experiences. Was able to train with Doug Padilla and, and uh, Paul Cummings on occasion. Uh, had that world cross country experience. Went to the national meet. Uh, meet uh, outdoors uh, down in Austin, Texas, and came up a little bit short. I was the, I think I was the only true freshman in the race. Uh, ended up running in a position where I thought I would, uh, had a chance for, to be all American, and then faded uh, badly, and ended up being dragged off the track with a, a lap to go because of heat in Austin, Texas, and so was a little bit short of, of being an all American my freshman year, which was one of my big goals that I had written down. Okay, here's an example of writing a goal down and working all year long and coming up short, um, but it was a it was a good experience for me and one that whetted my appetite, I think, for the next two years as I uh, went and, and served my mission. Where'd you go on your mission? So I was called to Spain, Barcelona, Barcelona, Spain. Well, so, well, well. Yes. You'd go back in 92. <laughs> that, is, that is cool. That, that was uh, obviously at the time when I was called there, I didn't realize that the Olympics even would be there. I don't think it had been announced at that point in time. Uh, but I got a chance to to go to the Iberian Peninsula and spend, uh, you know, two really, really uh, great years uh, with the good people of Spain, learn a language, uh, and uh, and meet so many good people, both, uh, you know, my mission presidents and my uh, the, the missionaries that I got to serve with and, of course, the, the good people in, of, of Spain. So you're born in another country. You travel to Tonga. You, you get out again now for Paris. You go to Spain. How many countries do you end up going to as a runner, whether it's the Olympics or different races, and in your career? Yeah, you know what? I, I, I don't have a, a ready answer for you on that. But I, uh, certainly by the time uh, you know, I ran through college and then uh, international teams, U.S. teams, and then professionally for another 15-plus uh, years, I think, uh, I think we tagged every— Pretty much every country in Europe uh, raced in Russia a couple of times. Um, 
and then uh, Asia, uh, most of the countries in Asia, um, some of the countries in Africa. And so, yeah, it, it, it literally opened up my world. And, uh, you know, it's been a great experience. And, and, you know, most of that has been in something running related, either broadcasting or racing or uh, now as a, for the last 20 years as a coach and, you know, sometimes traveling with my athletes to, to those events. But, it, um, yeah, it certainly has, has given this, uh, this guy from Ogden, Utah, from Washington to ter- Terrace. I should get specific about Ogden because Washington Terrace is kind of on the south, south southern part of uh, – of uh, Ogden, a great place to be from, again, um, a chance to see the world. Is there an experience or a place that sticks out as unique or interesting that you were like, what am I doing here? Because <laughs> <laughs> running in all those places, that's gnarly, man. Yeah. Oh, that's, that phenomenal question. And I would say they've all been really cool. Just, you know, anytime I, I always enjoyed representing my country. And so, uh, you know, any time I had the USA on my chest or on my singlet, I, I felt an extra uh, level of pride. So certainly Seoul, Korea in the Olympics, going back to my mission field in uh, 1992 for the Olympics in Barcelona were phenomenal, knowing the language, knowing some people there and, and getting being able to, to be back there. I actually slept the night before the Olympic marathon final. Um, I slept in the same bed as I had as right before I left um, my mission uh, because the the uh, uh, obviously I was living in the Olympic Village, but the marathon is always the last event. At least it was the lo- the final event in in '92. And so uh, when you're in the Olympic Village, it's a great place, and you have all your needs met as you're as you're there really in terms of uh, housing and food and whatnot. Uh, but as the games uh, draw to a close and people have finished their events, then there becomes kind of a party atmosphere. And so uh, where everyone, oh, I've heard. everyone is, yes, <laughs> everyone is celebrating in their various ways that they celebrate. But a lot of times it's difficult to sleep because of the party sort of atmosphere. And you're getting ready for the most important race of your life. And everyone else is done with their races or done with their events. And, and is so it the last day typically of yeah, the, it's the, last uh, day. Of the Olympics. We run the, we run the, the marathon, year. and then there are the closing ceremonies. At least in Barcelona, as we finish, yes. then they, you know, we, they clean up the track, and boom, off go the fireworks. So, um, as a result of that, I had uh, made a connection with the then mission president, who I I forget his name, but I'm very grateful. He's he just said, "Hey, we're going to be out doing zone conferences. You're welcome to to take the the mission home, and you can sleep in these you know little beds here." And um, and so we were able to use that uh, the mission home in prep the last couple days before the only difference was i had my my wife was with me uh, there and she and we were able to just kind of camp out and make that our our final little mini olympic village was the was the mission home that's special yeah it was really that really, really is. pretty cool that's awesome okay so at BYU did you did you have a goal to win the triple crown oh, the like triple crown. this was Back a thing crown. this was the thing you wanted or it just happened I think it just happened you know you just uh, the big 3 distance Well I had races. won I had won the 10,000 meters my junior year so that was a pretty big deal and uh, so anytime you win it as a junior as Connor Mance found out I'm <laughs> winning the the uh, cross country nationals as a junior then you want to your senior year or your final year in his case and and in my case 
uh, I wanted to repeat that for sure. And the, the way that things worked out was just in the fall, uh, we national meet was at uh, Penn State University where I, you know, I, as I said earlier, I had a, had a good race that day and was able to win. And, and, uh, and so that started the whole triple crown process. But again, we hadn't really talked about it or anything. And then as we moved to outdoor season then, uh, and I was, I think I had run a 10,000 down at Mount Sac, uh, 2741. Uh, and I tell my guys that's without the super shoes, the new cheater shoes that are worth about, uh, 20 seconds plus for, <laughs> for <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> no, you know, the, the new Nike shoes that are out now that everybody's having. They're, you, ma- they're amazing. No, I, they're, oh, they're I'm ma- unaware. They're ma- tell me. Oh, well, they're, all oh, the records are just being totally rewritten now. Now, and, and I think everyone knows that the shoes are just super fast. Uh, you know, shoes but, can be that influential. Yeah, I think the the latest round of the the shoes with the carbon fiber midsole and the and and also the the, the super spongy midsole that they're using now uh, that they've come up with that all the shoe companies now are on board with mm. uh, are making some real incredible things, uh, improvements on, in terms of the time. That's why the, the sub two hours has been approached in the marathon, and we're all also seeing that impact the other events. Are you opposed but, to this? Because you called it a cheater shoe. Oh, well, I think we all <laughs> – well, I do that with tongue-in-cheek because yeah, obviously yeah. the IAAF or the – or the uh, I think they've changed their name now. The International uh, Track Federation now is saying you know they're they're going to accept it, and that mm. same technology is now being embraced by the other shoe companies. So Nike Nike was the first ones out that that had it, bless their hearts, and we're a Nike school, so we were have been pretty excited running in their shoes for the last couple of years. Now everyone else is. You have some it, of those shoes. Oh, I'll, I'll, are you kidding me? All my athletes have those shoes now. Every one of them have. Oh, of course. You, you have to. Well, How many you, pairs do you have? Do you, want to, do you want to start? Do you want to be standing on the starting line and look over and know that a guy has a maybe a 20-second advantage on you if he's wearing those shoes at 10,000 meters? No, you don't. <laughs> so, no yes, way. Yeah, of course, we're going to. And BYU is a first-class institution, obviously. So, And we are a Nike school, so obviously we have All those, those shoes as well. It's yeah. good that it started with Nike, though. Anyway, back to the original. I had run a fast time on the track. Uh, without the super shoes, we'll call them. Um, <laughs> and as a result of that, going into the NCAA championships, uh, it looked like I was going to be able to defend my title at 10,000. Uh, and so I think, I don't know if it was Coach uh, James who had proposed this, or maybe it was probably, I, I was, I'm sure I was on board with it. Uh, to try to do the 5,000 as well and try to do that double. Back then, you had to run rounds in the 5,000. You had to run a prelim in the 5, then the final in the 10, then the final in the 5. So there were three races uh, kind of back-to-back-to-back. And that year also... uh, the complicating factor and one that was had me a little bit nervous is the national meet was going to be down in Austin, Texas. Now, Austin, Texas is where I'd had again that, where I'd had that bad experience my freshman year, and so now I was going to go back on that same track and try to do um, do the double and get the triple crown in. So, and you do it. You, I did. It, you yeah. don't collapse this time. I I was able to get through it. Uh, the The first round of the five thousand was not, you know, too taxing. I came back the next day in the ten thousand, and I had I think a, I think I had about a fifty second. Um, I think my time was about fifty seconds better than the next fastest guy in the race going into it. So I was able to kind of run a comfortable ten thousand, and then uh, the five final was what I was a little bit concerned about because you know obviously having, I think I was the only one trying to do the double. And um, 
so I was worried about the heat and humidity and also just being fatigued from having, you know, run a, what, um, nine miles worth of races prior to that uh, 5,000 final. But going in, I, I felt good enough and was strong enough and was able to kind of just power my th- way through. When you win the Triple Crown, is that a huge deal at, at the time? Um, it Personally was, or and in the sport? I was just happy because um, – it's your senior year when the other shoe companies are kind of wondering, okay, is this gonna, is this a guy that we want representing us? Because, uh, you know, since un- unlike other professional uh, sports, we don't have teams out there that are going to uh, draft be drafting you, whatever, you yeah. but you do have shoe companies out there that, in essence, are going to be uh, drafting you. Or, I mean, and and so I was wanting to, and I'm sure that played into the factor of wanting to double as well. Uh, to just show that you know what I was capable of, and and so I think that as much as anything weighed in my mind of wanting to have a really good uh, day. Obviously, wanting to represent you know BYU well and score twenty points at the national meet was uh, was something that was important too. So who'd you sign with? Well, um, I had some nice offers. Let's let's put it that way. So I. I I had run all through Nike. I had run with Nike all through high school and college, so Nike certainly was uh, right there. They had a team called Athletics West at the time that was kind of their big team and and, and was probably one of the preeminent uh, U.S. Uh, running groups. And, and they did have a group that trained up in Eugene, Oregon, and there was, there was kind of the excitement of, you know, signing with those guys, being able, if I wanted to, to go there. Uh, there were a few other uh, groups that were um, – that were around and obviously adidas converse actually had had made a really really good offer they had some running shoes at the time and and one of my uh, guys that i ran with paul cummings had a had a pro contract with them um and i was about this close to signing with nike when um i I think the contract came through and it wasn't going to start until january and this was by the time we had all worked the details out with the agents and stuff it was the towards the end of June, July. And um, so there was going to be like a six-month period where I wasn't going to be getting paid. And then uh, my agent came and said, hey, there's another company that's now entered into the fray. And uh, I think they're going to make you a really nice offer. And I said, well, who are they? And he, he said, it's a company called Reebok. And I said, how do you spell that? How do you, how do you spell that? I'd never heard of them before uh, because this was mid-'80s. They had made a name just that earlier that summer as um, aerobics was really big, aerobic kind of dancing as exercise, and they had this, you know, this white Reebok aerobic shoe, and I was going, "Do they have a running shoes?" Because I don't think, <laughs> I don't think the Reebok uh, aerobic shoe would be the super shoe that I'm looking for right now. Uh, and they said, actually, they have a pretty good presence in 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 the United Kingdom. They've been around for a long time, but only in the U.S. for a short period of time with the aerobic, you know, dance shoe. Uh, so they actually have a running line that I think you'll like. And uh, the fact of the matter was they were going to, you know, they were going to pay me about double what uh, what Nike was. And I nice. said, where do I sign? Yeah, sign me <laughs> up. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And at BYU, you don't have a car? Oh, who told you that? That's on Legends. <laughs> on BYU TV. You didn't have a car at BYU. Not- which makes sense. You can run wherever. That's a funny joke. Yeah. But like, you didn't have a car. I, I guess. I, and and I, 
when I look back on it now, I just go, "What was I thinking?" National and, champ, and, no car. And you know what? My the my friends were so kind to to kind of transport me around and <laughs> and some of the free Uber. Some of the girls that I dated, I think, were so so nice to let me take their car or <laughs> to whatever. go to the malt or, shop. Or, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the malt shop on yes, University. Yes, they exactly. torn it down. Okay, they, they did. What's there now? Panda. Uh, uh, Panda it, it's uh, Dutch Bros. Oh, Dutch Bros. Okay. And, so, and uh, right. you know, the there's others. a couple others. But, but yes, yeah. it was the malt shop for yeah. years, and it was a great place. Yeah. And uh, but no, I, yeah, I was on foot for a, a lot of that. And uh, actually, the first car that I, of course, by the I, time I love this, by the time I graduated, so I'm uh, I'm still single, probably in part because I did not have a car. And and looking back on it now, they're probably I'm <laughs> I can see why it's easy for the girls to go. Uh, this guy is going nowhere. He's just a running bum, and he has no car. Um, but that summer after I did get that contract with Reebok, in fact, the first race that I went to was a little race in New Jersey, and uh, and one of the sponsors was a, a car company, and uh, well, was a car dealer, I guess. And so, first prize in that car was a little Toyota. In in that race was a little Toyota MR2. Uh, which was at the time just a nice little black two-seat sports car, and uh, fortunately I ended up winning that race and and uh, and having that car. It, it was the use of the car for a year, and so uh, I went from having no car whatsoever to kind of having a cool <laughs> little car to to drive around. But I don't think it changed me that much. And in Legends, your wife talks about. Now, when she met you, that was your car, and she was like, "Oh no, <laughs> another one of these guys." But then she asked you, "Is this your car?" And you said, "Yeah, but I want it in a race." She was like, "Okay, good." Yeah, yeah <laughs> yes. And Lynn loved that car. That's who I was dating at the time, yeah. and and uh, obviously we ended up getting married. But she loved that car. Once she realized that I hadn't paid good money for it, yeah, I just uh, won it uh, through my racing. That's awesome. Uh, it was a fun car. I still see some of that. That uh, you know, what was it? Probably would have been a 1986. Little Toyota MR2 two, toy se- two seater. You still see those uh, every now and then. Still very, rolling a- very angular mm. and uh, fun little car. Stick shift. So that's awesome. Okay, so you become a professional runner. What's life like, and and how long does this last? Of you run, you compete, and then at some point you get into broadcasting here. Right. Well, uh, it's funny because I was talking to one of my. Uh, Guys who graduated, uh, Rory Linkletter the other day, and Rory had a who phenom- set the Canadian yes. half marathon record. Yeah, Rory had Amazing. a phen- had a phenomenal weekend at Houston. Set the Canadian uh, half marathon record. So he, things are going really well for him right now, which I'm really excited to see. And we were talking back and forth, and I said, "So how are you enjoying your life as a professional run- and he, runner?" And, I, and he said, "Oh, you mean as a running bum?" And I, I said, "What?" He, <laughs> he said, "That's." He said, "Remember, coach, that's what you used to say that you did for a long." time you were a running bum and uh in some ways that's kind of what i did i mean uh my life revolved around my family and the way that i provided for my family was to run races uh year round and uh so my life consisted of getting up in the morning um 
you know, helping live with the kids a little bit, going out for my morning workout and then getting back. It, it was officially a morning workout as long as it was completed before noon. Um, and then, you know, being able to hang out, be the dad with my little kids and helping Lynn on whatever errands that she had or whatnot, and then doing another afternoon workout and uh, then getting ready for races, whatever they were, whether it be the Olympic trials or, the, uh, you know, national championships or road racing championships or whatever uh, whatever races that my uh, agent were, was able to line up for me. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I had some sponsorships with, uh, with some companies that gave me some, the stability to, you know, buy a house, make mortgage payments, um, and occasionally do, you know, public appearances and things like that. Um, and it was, it was a good life. It was, uh, you know, so that in terms of, um, professionally, then I guess that started in 85 and, and continued all the way until, uh, really 2000, I think was when my last, uh, contract expired. So 14, 15 years. Um, and, and it was a good life. It was a fun life. It was, uh, uh, as we talked before, it allowed me to, you know, kind of travel the world and, and meet some amazing people and, and run in some, some crazy races and, and, uh, be able to provide for my family and make a good living. Obviously, the highlight being, you know, winning national championships in 88 and 92 Olympics. Yes. What were those experiences like? Um, I think the the Olympic Games certainly, and this is in the marathon, right? Yeah, in yeah. Both. So at, at what point do you go? Okay, now I have to do marathons, as um, opposed to yeah, I'm sticking with 10k. I think I always knew that the marathon was going to be a good event for me because the longer the races went, the better I usually did. Um, you know, as um, in track and field, I was I was a solid conference, you know, champion uh, caliber uh, miler. Uh, and then as I moved up to the 3,000 meters and 5,000 meters, then I was uh, uh, the na- a national champion uh, level in, in Division I um, and could run very competitively internationally um, in cross-country, which is uh, world cross is usually competed at 12K, so a little longer than 10K. Um, you know, I finished top 10 a couple of times and—, and uh, like I said, got medaled as, as a in the World Junior Championships. But the longer it went from 12K up, then I usually found myself um, running that much better. Um, and so I think all along, even when I was in college, I thought the, the marathon had a real mystique to it, intrigue to it. I saw the people who were not as fast as me for 10,000 meters were running super fast times and making uh, national teams and and. Uh, Olympic teams. And so I thought, well, if I'm that much faster than 10,000 meters that as I transition to the longer event, then that'll carry forward. And it didn't work out quite according to that. Uh, I think the, I think I ended up being a very solid, I mean, obviously I made two Olympic teams in the, in the marathon and I had some, some great races. I think my sweet spot probably was uh, still cross country. I think on the world stage, I think I did fared a little better and it, uh, the World Cross Country Championships than I did uh, in the marathon. Although making, you know, being one of the top uh, marathoners in the in the in the country, um, I think was was great. It was a great opportunity for me to 
to make Olympic teams. I, I sometimes, in hindsight, look back now and go, you know, I probably should have spent a little bit more time uh, continuing to work my 10,000-meter side. Um, as it turned out on those Olympic years in 88 and 92, I was always one to kind of want to hedge my bets a little bit. And the Olympic trials and the marathon always fell prior to the Olympic track trials. You know, the Olympic marathon trials were usually three to five months prior. And so um, I think both 88 and 92, I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll see how things go in the 10,000. But there's the marathon that's before, so let's run the marathon. And then I ended up making the Olympic team in both of those, which was huge. And the payouts were greater for the marathon. So the fi- on the financial side, it was a little bit more lucrative. Um, and I also felt like ultimately um, it would be – it, the 10,000 was turning still into an event that was uh, a lot of times back then kind of a sit and kick affair. And I didn't have the, the raw speed in the last 400 to be able to, you know, win a, a gold medal. And so ultimately, I would think I, I think I made choices uh, that were smart for what I was trying to ultimately accomplish. But it would have been fun uh, maybe to have tried doubling in the in the games of 88 and 92 maybe. Um but, you know, you, you, you go through. I, I think if, if I had myself as a coach now, I probably would be saying, Ed, let's see what we can do. Let's, that's great that you made the, te- the, the marathon. Let's see what you can come back and do in the, in the 10,000 as well. Is that the future for Connor Mance? Because Jared Ward took sixth in Rio in 2016. Right, that was right. incredible. Roy Linkletter's going into that space, mm-hmm. I think, right? Yeah. Connor has won, you know, uh, back-to-back cross-country national championships and track and everything. Is that the future for him, or is 10K the spot? No, I, I think he'll be a great marathoner. I think he has that drive and determination and the grit necessary. He loves to do long runs. That's kind of a requirement as well, and he loves <laughs> to pound the mileage. And, and uh, so I think if that's what he decides he wants to do, which I think he's gravitating towards, probably not in the next few months, but uh, eventually, and I, I think in the fall, we'll see him take on, on the marathon. I think for the time being, he's going to – try to continue to explore the the 5000 the 10000 side in fact he's going to run a he's going to run a fast 3000 here next week at the, week at the Millrose games and then a fast 5000 the week after week or two after that so but yes i think Connor Mance, the long long answer to a short question is is i think he would be could be a great marathoner if that's what he chooses to do when do you get in and how to broadcasting because you end up being an Olympic broadcaster. Ed, no matter what I do, I'll never pass that. <laughs> well, I think you <laughs> – I did That's it as, pretty good. I, I did it as a side gig, uh, and, and that maybe that makes it even cooler <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't have to spend all the time. You know, uh, although I, you know, I, I think I did pay uh, – pay my dues as well. I mean, I think when some people heard that I got the Olympic gig, they were kind of going, really? And But then if they would have looked at my body of work going into it, they kind of went, well, you have been paying your dues for 10, 12 years. Um, yeah, the broadcasting thing just came about. I had won a race called the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia, and I don't even know what year it was, but I, I did win it. And uh, the next year, I think I was, you know, it, it, probably would have had an appearance fee to have me back for it, but I was recovering from about of, I think, springtime pneumonia and um, felt like I wasn't in the best shape. So I told my agent, I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to race this, but since I am the returning champion, if, they were, if they're looking for a, an athlete as a color guy, 
I'd be happy to do it. So he said, well, I'll look into it. And so I get a call back and said, yeah, well, the, the road race of the month said, yeah, you could they'd try you out on it. So just go and do it. And I remember being really nervous, like, uh, what am I going to do? And uh, how do I do this? And uh, But I'd always been, you know, hammy enough in terms of put a microphone in, in my face. You know, I could do a pretty good, usually uh, – some source yeah i'd be able to spit something out uh after a race and so i felt comfortable enough to put myself in that position um and i remember the first uh this particular race they had us do a couple of um uh on cameras uh, things before kind of setting up the race and i remember the first time i did it i was you know that sounded like really over rehearsed and so that i just said okay <laughs> let me try that again and the next time it went a little bit better and fortunately and this particular show wasn't live anyway so they could use the the second take on it um and uh that's just how i got my foot in the door and then one thing led to another and the next thing i knew i was doing anywhere from eight to ten of these a year uh, in addition to the racing that I was uh, doing and uh, kind of just building up a body of work and a comfort level uh, with the group that I was working with. And it was a, it was a kind of a soft place to start because the, the whole production crew, we were kind of like good friends and we traveled together and would be to eight to ten different places. We flew to, we had, we covered a race in Guatemala. We covered a race in Mexico City. We covered a race in Puerto Rico uh, and then races in Maine and Florida and uh, all over the place, really. And um, so if I wasn't racing, then a lot of times during that, I don't know, five to ten year period, uh, period then I was uh, doing broadcasting of, of a race and just from the inner, from the elite runner side of things, what the guys were going to be experiencing. So a lot of it was just kind of, uh, you know, telling stories or what what it would be like racing on that and whatnot. And it was, um, like I said, a, a very good crew uh, that I worked with. At, at the production company was called Elite Racing, and they were kind of a production arm of um, the Rock and Roll Marathon series. So we covered a lot of the Rock and Roll Marathons and any race that they were sponsoring. And then we had other races that uh, would, would pay us to cover their event and essentially put it on ESPN. It was on ESPN for a lot of years, and then it was also on, uh, I think, Fox Sports. And um, so that that just kind of got my foot in the door, and we had some fun with that. And and obviously, it, during this time, I'm getting older as a runner, and the Kenyans are getting faster, and I'm getting slower. And and I know that I can't uh, ride this all the way. At, at, the, at that point, I'm getting into my late mid 30s, then late 30s, and then approaching 40. And uh, I went to the Olympic trials in 1996. And came up short in both the marathon and then came back in the 10,000. 10,000, I, I should have made that team, um, which is why I kind of say maybe I should have spent a little bit more time. Uh, because here I was 35 years old, hadn't really focused on the 10,000. Spent some months after the marathon trials when I didn't make the team getting back in 10K shape. And was in, um, I was in um, second place late in the race. Uh, and then third place late, late in the race. And had I just been able to probably pound out a 70 on the last 400, I would have made it. But again, they, it was, the trials were in Atlanta, Georgia, heat and humidity, and they ended up carting me off with a lap to go. So uh, I went from making the team, making my third team to not, not making it at all. And at that point in time, um, I realized, well, I'm going to have to, you know, they're probably not going to renew me at that point in time because you're a 39-year-old dude uh, trying to renew a shoe contract, running against progressively 
younger guys. And that's when I kind of went, okay, I'm going to either have to go into the private uh, sector and, and find a business that somehow wants to utilize my talents, or I'm going to have to go you know, all in on this broadcasting thing, or maybe examine the coaching side of things a little bit. Um, and fortunately, I got a call from Chick Hislop at the time we were living, uh, as our, our family was living in Layton, East Layton area. I got a call from Chick Hislop at Weber State, and he said, hey, I, how would you like to come up and help out, be one of my assistants, essentially a volunteer assistant, while you finish up your because I still had, I think, another year on my shoe contract. Uh, but if you'd like to get your foot in the door, I'd be happy to give you that opportunity. So I'm, I'm very grateful to uh, Chick Hislop at Weber State to, for giving me that shot. And I was able to go and experience the big sky for two and a half years and, and make uh, road trips to Missoula and Billings and, and all the various spots on the NAU and the various spots on the, on the big sky tour and learned a lot from Coach Hislop and was able to kind of incorporate some of my training into some of the philosophies and stuff of, um, of, the, of the team culture that we were building there at Weber State and had a great time. In fact, I had, I'd had a conversation with uh, Rondo Felberg uh, when I was offered the job as an assistant at Weber State and because I said, you know, I feel like I need some experience. I mean, I feel like I've, I could probably do okay right now but I don't have any college uh, D1 experience. What do you recommend? When Rondo was at BYU. When Rondo was the athletic, athletic director, director here because yeah. Coach James was still coaching here, and, and uh, so there wasn't a position available for one. And he said, well, you know, <laughs> it'd be great if you could come down here and help us. And I said, well, I, that, that, that position hasn't been offered right now, and I'm living, you know, up in the Kaysville area, so it would be a bit of a commute if we were to do that anyway. And then he just said, you know what? The best thing you could do is to take that job, do the best you can, try to beat BYU every time you face us. <laughs> and then, you know, down the road at some point in time when things change, you're going to have some experience and, and maybe we can bring you down. And so uh, I was excited about that. And it wasn't a job offer necessarily at, at BYU, but it was uh, uh, an offer that maybe would consider you down the road. And uh, so I, I had a great time uh, there at Weber State. I was, I was actually, though, at a race in Florida because I was still doing both, racing and uh, helping out and coaching. And I got a call from Lynn. And she said, have you checked the paper? Or uh, She may have said Internet because I think by then, what are we, at the late 90s, I guess the Internet existed mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, and I said, no, I, I haven't. Uh, and she said, well, you may want to. Uh, Rondo uh, Felberg um, retired. And uh, I went, oh, that's kind of the guy I'd been talking to about maybe getting a job at BYU. And so uh, I realized that, <clears throat> yeah, I, I had had a connection at, to BYU, and I hadn't had a guarantee that I'd end up here, but I felt like I had a good connection with the with the AD at the time. And then he, uh, he retired, and I kind of went, oh, okay, well— Hopefully, you know, this coaching thing, I'm really enjoying it. That's what I did know. I really super enjoyed it. And um, I, I felt like I was even more passionate about the athletes that I got to work with than I was about my own career, certainly at that time, um, and got a lot of enjoyment. And at the time, I don't think – I think I got paid a – I don't know if, if they were get, able to get me $1,000 a, a year or something like that at, at Weber State, but I felt like I was, had been paying my dues for the two and a half years. And um, it was shortly after that, again, I was still doing some broadcasting things to, to make ends meet, uh, that I, I did get a, 
Um, I think Coach Hershey uh, retired down here. He was the head track and field coach, and um, so I put in and had a wonderful uh, conversation with Val Hale, who was the AD at the time. And um, <clears throat> although the, I didn't get the head position at the time, uh, I did get kind of a cryptic uh, letter back from Val Hale, you know, in my you know kind of rejection letter saying, I think there's going to be a place for you here eventually. And uh, so I, uh, I think I had another six months or so to wait. And then uh, Coach uh, James at that time um, uh, announced his retirement. And so uh, they brought me in in, uh, I think it was the summer of 2020. And um, it's 2002. Oh, excuse me. 2000, 2000 flat. 2000, 2000. even. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. And um, so the summer of mm-hmm. 2000, it was 20 years in 2020. So that's I was thinking of, but in 2000. And so, um, so yeah, it's like, it's unbelievable that 20 plus years have now passed with me being here. Um, but it does fly by. It's crazy. And you didn't recruit me, uh, at a high school cause I, cause I was 55th <laughs> in the state. It wasn't good enough. I yeah, get it. Dude. I get it. I, I apologize. <laughs> I was an academic walk on as well, but no, it's all good. Um, the, tell me about, uh, um, running in general, like to run a marathon, I respect everyone that does it because yeah. it just feels crazy. That's just a long way to run. And then there's these ultra marathoners. Tell me about them because Sean Olmstead's one of them. Sean's, the men's volleyball coach. Sean's big time. And like, there's yeah. something different in the brain of like, I can overcome the physical, mental, emotional toll of this. Like, what? Like yeah. Jared Ward one time told us, we were like, what is it you love about marathon? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> He's yeah. like, I kind of hate it. Yeah, but, but you have to love it. Yeah, you'd have to ask Sean directly in in <laughs> regard to the ultras because that is a a totally different breed. Uh, I can see some of the intrigue to it because I enjoy hiking, and I can see I I don't mind. Uh, my daughters and I a couple of years well was it last year two years ago uh, we climbed King's Peak in a day, mm. so we just from the parking lot to the top and back, and it was about a twenty eight mile day, and we just hiked all day. Wow, and it was really cool. Uh, when we got done. So I can kind of see how fun it is just to move your body for that period of time. Now, the stuff that Sean does in terms of 100 miles plus races, that's just a, a total different, uh, you know, area. So I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm competent to really address that. But in terms of the, the marathon, uh, I think it's a great goal for people to have, a great kind of bucket list goal. Um, of wanting to do it just to see if what it's like. And that's why if you go to the finish line of any marathon, major or minor marathon, it's really kind of a spiritual uh, moment, uh, certainly for the people completing it, and particularly for those who are doing it their first time, just because the fact that they've willed themselves to go that far. And it's not even so much that what they've done on that particular day, I think it's the whole preparation for it. Mm-hmm. You know, the months of preparation in most cases with uh, people and the dedication that they've done to it. And it's also um, a real um, great testament to the love and support that they have in terms of the positive enablers that have allowed them to uh, to make it to the finish line of a marathon because it it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice by family members. It's a sacrifice by others to allow you that luxury of doing that 
three hour plus long run every Saturday in preparation for that and and um, you know watching the kids while you get that you know extra run in and and stuff like that so it's it's a great uh, thing and and at the end of the day it's great accomplishment and and I'm just talking about Joe Blow, who runs the race, just a recreational runner or, or person who had, doesn't really have a running background that does it, I think it's a great accomplishment. Now, uh, it's also, and, and it's kind of a different event when you, uh, when you, when you talk about the two-hour, the low, you know, sub-210 uh, runners, because that's a different experience as well. But I think there's still some of that same almost spiritual, physical uh you know, quality about it because they are pushing themselves as well, but just to another extreme because these guys are full-time athletes, professional athletes in every way, shape, or form, maybe even more so than some of their team sports because they have to pay attention to every single aspect of their life and their way that they live and their way that they eat and the way that they sleep and all of those things together to to make it happen. So uh, whether you're a three-hour guy or a four-hour guy or a five-hour guy or a two-hour and four-minute guy, I have complete uh, respect, but in particular those that are pushing their bodies to the ultimate, uh, you know, edge to, to run these amazing times that they're running now. Total respect for those guys. It's incredible. It really is. Yeah. Okay, as a coach, and I should have left more time for this, but as a coach, you've been able to coach some incredible athletes. Um, what have been some of the highlights for you of, especially the last couple of years, it feels like we're in the golden era of, yeah. of running here, team and individual. Yeah. Uh, you produced Individual national champs in cross country, track national championships, team national—it's been amazing. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been been fun to see everybody, and it's been uh, fun to to uh, see the revitalization of the women's program with Coach Taylor as well. But in terms of the men's, the 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 day to day guys that I get to work with directly are the men's distance program. Is the men's uh, side? Those are the guys that I actually uh, am coaching directly one on one, and certainly Connor Mance is uh, you know comes across as. Uh, our most recent national champ, and to have him win it twice. Do you realize that the only American, I think the only other American to have won this two times consecutively, you have to go all the way back to Steve Prefontaine, oh which my is a gosh. pretty big, uh, legendary individual, right? That's amazing. To be, to be compared with. Wow. And so uh, to have Matt's mentioned in the same breath as Steve Prefontaine, you know, one of the true running legends in, in the U.S. anyway, is... Uh, is quite the fact, and and uh, and so it's been fun to work with him. Very tenacious, very gutty, very you know high pain tolerance, uh, and just love of the sport, love to perform, uh, and performs when the pressure is the highest. He performs at his best, so that that's been great to work with. Uh, the the national championship team in 2019 was a team of uh, they called them ha- they called themselves Ham and Eggers, uh, <laughs> meaning that they were just a kind of a blue collar group of guys that um, and certainly we had Mats up front who that year got third individually but then the other guys just cobbled together uh, you know strong performances to 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 get them <laughs> get them the national championship very very proud of that of that group that would certainly came at a time when I didn't know that we were necessarily going to win. I thought we had a chance, but that was the team that had the naivete to believe that it was possible. And we kind I think we went into that race with the, with the most swagger and kind of, but the most kind of, kind of 
um, almost giggly at the potential rather than feeling the weight of the pressure. Hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, other guys that we've had is, is uh, certainly, you know, having Jared Ward come through the program and uh, had an, a couple of injuries that kept him from winning individual national championships as an athlete. But then to see his uh, growth and development post-collegiately, uh, still training and using the facilities around here, uh, and occasionally jumping in the workouts with the guys has been really fun. And then to see him really blossom at both the Olympic trials and then at the world stage and the Olympic Games was huge uh, back in 2016. Uh, Josh McAdams making the Olympic team in 2008 was huge. Uh, that was particularly fun because I had been asked by NBC to to uh, broadcast the the distance events. I, they didn't let me do the steeplechase, though. I think they thought I was going to be too excited or whatever with him in it. But uh, <laughs> I did the the five thousand, the ten thousand, and the marathon, and the and the race walks of all events. Talk about nice. Uh, having no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that never. I know uh, you are always. <laughs> that's that never happens to you. Uh, uh, yeah, never. never. <laughs> but uh, so that was fun. Uh, Josh McAdams had also won a, a national championship for us in the steeplechase. Kyle Perry in the steeplechase. I, I. But but you know it's easy to come out with all these. Um, Guys who've won national championships, but but sometimes it's I mean, obviously it's it's just as rewarding just working with the twenty plus guys that I get to uh, work with. You know, this season who aren't necessarily going to be national champs individually. Hopefully, they're going to be parts of of team national championships, but may not reach the individual glory. But it's just fun the day in day out. Uh, working with them because uh, it's not many, you know, most people who run at the college level, we get four years, maybe five if we take that redshirt year. I feel like right now I'm on my, uh, what, I think 22nd year of coaching, uh, maybe 24th year of coaching collegiately. And uh, you add that with my four or five years uh, that I, I guess four years as a collegiate runner, then I've got 25 plus years as a division one athlete and or coach and it's been a great ride it's been amazing ed and it's fun to watch your team it's fun to interact with you thanks for spending an extended period of time to talk about your life man thank you okay that'll do it for us listen to previous episodes on the BYU radio app where podcasts are found for ed Eyestone and producer tanner graff i'm jerem jordan you've just listened to deep blue on byu radio